Well, we have the privilege of having Tom Patton with us today. He's been schooled at the Masters University and the Masters Seminary. How many of you have actually heard Tom Patton speak before? Wow, got a lot of friends here, Tom. And Tom's brought his wife and two of his children. One of his children, I'm sad to say, chose to stay at Grace Community Church. He told his father, I've heard that sermon before. I don't need to hear it again. So, um, but anyway, we're blessed to have men like this who um, come from Grace Community and other churches and who um, serve us. And um, I've told them to bring the whole thing. Don't edit it. The body needs all of the word that he's prepared tomorrow. So sit back, get out your notes, pen, and uh, let's get ready for a great message. Thanks, Tom, for coming to be with us. This is such a pleasure to be here. Um, thank you, Steve, uh, for just your hospitality and your graciousness to me. And Cora, what a magnificent uh, piano, uh, just expressing the glory of God. It was wonderful. And Dave, the music here, the people, the worship, uh, this has really been already a wonderful time. And just thank you. You'll probably want to know that Adam... Uh, texted me early this morning uh, to make sure I didn't forget. And uh, <laughs> that has to be the reason. He said, thank you so much for serving the people at Placerita today, as if I was going to go, oh, oh, I forgot. Um, <laughs> so uh, John Street, also who spoke here last week, is a dear personal friend of mine. I minister with him every Lord's Day. Uh, he and I co-pastor a group at Grace Church called Join Heirs. And so what a wonderful thing to be able to follow in his footsteps. And, and really, the elders of Grace Church, uh, everyone who I represent uh, greets you and are so thankful to be here this morning. <clears throat> if you would, take your Bibles and open them to the last seven verses in the book of Job. Job 42, verses 10 through 17. Job 42, verses 10 through 17. And just listen as I read. Job 42, 10 through 17. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapuk. And all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days, and he lived happily ever after. <laughs> Those last six words are not in the Hebrew, of course. <laughs> but that's where they would go if they were. Job lived happily ever after. Those words are usually associated with fairy tales, folklore, happily ever after. It's usually connected in our minds in our childhood when we were thinking of fantasy or romance, larger-than-life stories that had larger-than-life endings. And yet, be that as it may, the theme of happily ever after is abundantly he clear here in the book of Job in these last verses. Job lived happily ever after. 
Now, if you've ever attempted to mine the depths of this unparalleled book, when life has multicolored trials and entered your life with such adversity, then that phrase really strikes a deep chord within you. Because when you consider all of the loss, if you consider all of the sacrifice, all of the heartbreak that Job had to go through and that he suffered for this book to end with the clouds parting and the storm subsiding is really almost more than we could have ever imagined. Happily ever after, as one writer wrote, the most beautiful and haunting words in the entire library of mankind. They are beautiful words because they reflect ultimately the hope of every each and one of us here who has ever had to suffer under the hand of God. And they are haunting because the words happily ever after sometimes seem a million miles away. I say that because some who have studied this book are very disturbed. They are very troubled with this happy ending of the book of Job. Some would argue that Job's restoration is not relevant to the story. It's untrue for most people who suffer. Therefore, why would you include such a story at the end? Some say this happily ever after ending cheapens the pain that Job went through, minimizes the message, distorts the lesson. In fact, some modern scholars argue that ambiguity is really the only fitting story to a story like Job. It's not happily ever after. Modern scholars would say it's ambiguity and confusion and moral uncertainty. Those are the things that give stories a more kind of profound ring of truth to them because for everything to turn out just rosy at the end just doesn't seem real. One author writes, happiness you see is just an illusion of fate, a heavenly sleight of hand designed to make you believe in fairy tales, but there's no happily ever after, end quote. You see, the world distrusts happy endings. It's perhaps because they sense the nearness of their own unhappy ending coming upon them. But regardless, Job's story ends well. The tragedy of Job ends well. All of the loose ends are tied in together. The pain has subsided. Wrongs are all righted. And at the very end of this story, tears are wiped away and triumph over trials happens but just maybe not in the way that you might expect. And what's interesting about this last portion of this really great story is not so much what it reveals to us about Job, but what it reveals to us about the Lord. And I say that because here in these last eight verses, what we're going to see, we're going to have three manifestations of God's blessing upon Job's life to demonstrate the unspeakable kindness of the Lord. If you're taking notes, there's going to be three areas of God's gracious goodness to Job that make Job's story a happily ever after story. This is God's triumph over Job's trials. After all the pain, after all of the loss that he had to go through, after all the lack of empathy and lack of comfort, after all the ridicule and the shame and the blaming and the physical torment that Job had to undergo, it is God himself at the very end of the story who reverses all that has happened to our tortured hero and brings us to tears with his own kind of happily ever after. 
So these are the three manifestations of God's blessing upon Job. And I'm going to give them to you up front, then I'll go through them as we go. First, God restores, uh, restores Job's wealth, and we see that in verses 10 and 12. God repairs Job's heart, and we see that in verses 11 and 13. And lastly, God rewards Job's legacy, and we're going to see that in verses 14 through 15. And in each one of those areas, God displays a blessing. And each one of those, we're going to notice a very important truth. A very important truth that is meant for us to consider that in each one of these, God has a blessing to Job. We get a sense of, a hint of, God's blessing to us in the days to come. But before I do that, I want to comment on some very uh, erroneous implications that have been associated with this very text. And I say that because some people are seduced into believing that uh, there's a kind of happily ever after presented here for everyone, and that that's what this text is pointing to. First, let me say it this way. You're not going to find, as we go through this, any principles for you to follow. You're not going to find any steps for you to climb. There's no, going to be any measurable things to do. You're not going to see any applications that guarantee that you and I are going to end our suffering in this life with health and wealth and prosperity. It's not there. Even Job's own endurance, as the book of James says, is, is not a key, if you will, to the triumphant ending of this story. Rather, what you have here in this book of Job is the actual historical manifestations of what God once did in the life of a man named Job around 4,000 years ago and nothing more. This is what happened to him and God's demonstration of his kindness. You can't find, in other words, any rules to abide by in this section. You can't find any guidelines to follow to get what you want. This is all here having God's blessing in Job just because of his own marvelous, incredible choice to do that to his servant. And yet some people will read these words in the book of Job and they will glean out of this some very troubling thoughts about how you can gain your own fortune or prosperity or health by God. One writer said this, what you have here is 12 uh, principles that are essential for everyone desiring full restoration after experiencing life's trials. In other words, they're saying that what you have here are 12 principles that you can follow to ensure God's perfect restoration in your life. And yet, tragically, there are no such principles in the book. There are no principles in this book to guarantee the restoration of health or wealth or prosperity, as some people claim. If anything, the book of Job implies that it's the intrinsic greatness and majesty of God alone that should be enough in our lives to sustain our faith and our hope, and not just in the absence of blessings, but also in the presence of sufferings. And again, there's no incentives here in the last closing words of Job to give us a pattern to copy, no steps to follow, to glean from God any fortune or blessing. We can't try to come to this text to figure out what Job did to make God turn his life around because I want to tell you at the outset, it's not here. No, our only goal, my goal this morning with you is to understand that how it was that God in the perfection of his perfect timing came to one of his servants and blessed the one that was suffering for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his own good, for our good and his glory so that we might learn to trust him as the days unfold because one day we too will walk alongside the same road. 
So with that being said, let me just briefly set to you the context of this last portion of the book because you can't really fully appreciate the end of the story unless, of course, you know the beginning of the story. And the beginning of the story is the part that most people do understand and most uh, enjoy and speak about when you go to the book of Job. It begins, chapter 1, verse 1, with almost kind of a once upon a time kind of beginning opening statement because it says in verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is very, very vital that we understand this from the very beginning as we contemplate the end, and that is, it tells us from the very beginning of the story that we are about to understand that this man named Job is a man unlike any other man, that this man was a pure man, and he was a holy man, and he was, verse 3 tells us also, he was considered one of the greatest men of all the East. He was upright and respected and rich and famous. He was a man who loved God. He was a man who walked with God. He was a family man, we find out in this opening chapter, a man with seven sons and three daughters, ten children that he loved so deeply that he would pray for them. Daily was his practice to pray for his children, as not just most people would, but he would regularly offer up burnt offerings for his children, for every child, get this, just in case, just in case that they had sinned against God in their heart. He says it in verse 5, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did, offering up these offerings continually. So what we have before us in the very beginning of the book is an incredible man. We have a man that is a wonderful father. He's a respected family man. He's respected by his community. He's hailed even by his own servants as the greatest man in the generation of men in which he lived. And yet, suddenly, in the beginning, we see this scene shifting from earth to heaven. And in that, we are catapulted into the throne room of God where we come face to face with one of the most stunning sights in all of Scripture, one of the most stunning thoughts that you could ever have imagined. And it is that there in heaven are the sons of God, these heavenly beings that are there presenting themselves before the Lord of Lords. And then unexpectedly comes one who in the Hebrew says is the Satan, the Satan, the accuser of old, standing right before the ancient of days. This is somewhat of a jarring picture for you as you read the book because we don't often think of Satan standing before God. Usually we think of Satan as the ruler of hell or we think of Satan as the king over the lake of fire. But the very truth is this minute as we even speak, Satan is not in hell. Satan is not reigning over it as the lord of the inferno as some medieval poets might have depicted him. No, Satan at this very moment is spending the majority of his time in our day in the same way he did in Job's day, roaming about the earth like a lion, looking for those whom he can devour, and then accusing the brethren before God in the realm of heaven. One day, of course, the book of Revelation, Revelation 12 tells us that he will be permanently blocked from heaven, but now as it appears in Job 1, he is standing before the Lord. And I want you to notice, instead of Satan beginning this conversation, if you look with me in verse 8, it is God himself who begins conversing about Job, saying, Have you considered my servant Job, 
For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. This is the second confirmation thus far in the book about this man named Job. And more importantly than this being just the narrator's opinion of Job in verse 1, now this is God's own opinion of Job, making a declaration about this wonderful, most profound man. The Lord is going to echo the same thought again in chapter 2 using the identical same language just to make sure that we get the point from the very beginning of the story that whatever happens to Job, Whatever takes place in his life, whatever comes upon this, what you might call the greatest of sufferers in the Old Testament, whatever comes to him is in spite of his righteousness. It is in spite of who he is. All that befalls him, all that crushes him, does so in spite of his pristine faithfulness to God. This is so vital to understand. Satan understood this. Satan understood it perfectly. Satan knew of Job's uprightness, and it infuriated him. I say that because when the Lord asks Satan about Job and then proceeds to brag about his servant, Satan utters these words in verses 9 and through 11. Satan said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Not only is he saying God loves you because you bless him, Job only loves you, God, because you bless him. I bet you everything that Job has, that if you take away everything that's meaningful to him, everything that he clings to, he will curse you to your face. And so, beginning here, and then again in chapter 2, the Lord of heaven and earth allows Satan to empower a band of terrorists to slay his entire servant all the servants he has, to steal from his livestock, annihilating all the fortune that he had accumulated. And then right before, he commands a fury of a terrible wind to collapse the home where each one of his children were crushing them to death. In the blink of an eye, once this hedge is replaced or taken away and removed, Job's life is changed forever. There's no explanation given. There's no warning uttered. It was just in one minute all was well, and in the next minute all is gone. And then, as if that's not enough, Satan is given permission to allow a form of skin cancer to come upon Job and consume his flesh and put him in agony. A disease so very horrible that even Job's own wife pleads with him to curse God and just die, just give up your life. And yet, beyond anything that we could ever expect, it says in Job 2.10, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Can you imagine that? He did not sin with his lips. In all of this, in all of the loss, in all of the heartbreak and the pain and the confusion, Job refused to curse God. And Job already knew that God had allowed it. And then, of course, if you know the story, come the friends. And the friends come, three friends from afar, who come to console him. First, of course, with their weeping and their support, but then only 
for the majority of the book, the majority of what most people don't know, the book, they attack him and try to convince him in a myriad of different kind of ways to repent for the sin that they believe that he has committed to have brought all of these atrocities and cast all upon him. And this is really the key issue of the book of Job. Though Job did nothing to bring upon himself the tragedies he suffered, listen, everyone, everyone in his day believed that he was guilty of something. Everyone in his day, every one of his friends, every one of his neighbors, every one of his family members, they all believed what the theologians call the principle of retribution. And the principle of retribution meaning they believe that evil always comes upon you when you do evil, and good always comes upon you when you do good. They believed in this principle of retribution as a fixed law of the universe, never varying. It always stayed. It was always true in each and every circumstance. So what that means is if you're sick, then that must have come upon you as a direct result of some sin that you've committed. And if you suddenly become blind or get cancer, that too is a direct result of the fact that there's some secret hidden sin in your life. If your child dies, if your business fails or your marriage fails, or, or you're reaping what you have sown as a direct result of an absolute fixed universal law of retribution. And yet, we know from the book of James 5.5 that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. In other words, sometimes there is a sickness that is a result of sin and sometimes there is not. Sometimes it's a result of what you've done and sometimes it's just a result. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who told his disciples to the man who was born blind in John chapter 9 that he was born that way not because of his own sin and the sin of his parents, but because of, so the works of God might be manifest through him and so Christ could demonstrate his deity by healing him. So I say this to you because there's no hard and fast rule in the universe that says all trials always come to us because of sin, though that can be true. But the principle of retribution fails to take into consideration the fact that God moves according to his own sovereign purposes and not according to some kind of law that exists mechanically outside of his own choosing. This is clear in the message of Job. The book of Job says there once was a man who was righteous, upright, turning away from evil, and yet his entire business, all of his children and his health were robbed from him by God's perfect, sovereign allowance for his own undisclosed purposes. Remember, Job is not a sinless man. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can claim that. But Job actually wrestles with God, if you know the book. He wrestles with him. He's very brazen. He demands things from God that is really, in some ways, kind of daunting. But it's not because of his sin that these things came upon him. That's what's clear in the story. Though Job was wrong to find fault in God... He had done no wrong and was not responsible for bringing upon himself these massive, massive trials. So it is then, 40 chapters later, that we come now to our verses this morning. After all the devastations occur and after all of the people have accused him, out of nowhere, God begins to bless Job. So let's look at this, the first manifestation of God's blessing to Job. Namely, number one, God restores Job's fortunes. 
God restores Job's fortunes. And we see that just in verse 10. We read, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Now, as we come to verse 10, it seems to be a very, very clear connection between the restoration of Job's fortunes and the prayer that he prayed for his friends. And again, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Therefore, it's important for us to ask the question, what is the connection here? What is the connection? Is there some kind of health, wealth, and prosperity theological illustration that ties prosperity to prayer? Or else, what could it be? This is, is this the secret, if you will, of Job's restoration? Once he prayed for his friends, then for them to be restored, God automatically responded by restoring his fortune. Is that what we see here? How do we to understand that? And again, the context is the key. The context is always, always the key. Just before this chapter, God finally decides after chapters of deafening silence to appear before Job in a massive whirlwind. You understand that section of Scripture, a very famous portion of Scripture. It's actually known to be the longest speech God ever gives in all of Scripture, the longest monologue of God. And he does so with such an undisputable demonstration of just his great and awesome righteousness that by the end of the speech, end of his monologue, Job finally repents. And he repents for the sin of charging God with wrongdoing. And then at that point, immediately God turns his attention to the three friends who are also in earshot of what's happening there, and he condemns them for not speaking to him as God with words of repentance for their sin of misrepresenting God, and it is here that he commands them. That's in Job 42, 8. And he says, Now therefore, God speaking, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So God commands them to go to Job so that his servant might pray for them. This is the prayer that's being referred to in verse 10. So Job is being fully, was restored spiritually to God once he repented, of his fault finding, but God, but Job was restored materially and emotionally and physically once he prayed for his friends. Again, how are we to understand this connection? There is without doubt some kind of relationship here in verse 10 with between Job's prayer for his friends and Job's restoration. But the question is, does this verse teach that if we pray to God on behalf of others, then God brings back to us the health and wealth and prosperity that we long for? It's a very, very important question to ask. I say that because take Vanitha Rendell Reisner. She is a woman who had undergone 21 surgeries by the time she was 13 years old. This is a woman who had spent years in the hospital. She suffered verbally and, and physically bullying from her schoolmates, had multiple miscarriages in her life. As a young wife, she suffered the death of a child. She had a devastating progressive disease that forced her into a wheelchair and feels ongoing pain and personal abandonment because of an unwanted divorce. Vanitha had begged God many, many times for grace to be delivered and yet to no avail. She had been personally ushered 
out the back of a healing service after being publicly chastened under the assumption that if you're not healed, it's your fault. Because God, quote, will, God's will is for everyone to be healed always. The faithful will never suffer, end quote. And she writes this in her memoirs. She says, quote, years ago, a colleague mentioned what he had learned from Job. I was surprised to hear that his study had yielded a markedly different conclusion than mine. In his words, Job got everything back and more for his suffering. He was blessed with more children and more money than he ever had before. That's what the story shows us. Doing the right thing always brings blessing and prosperity. That God's goal for us in this life is perfect health, total happiness, financial gain. In this life, we simply need to name what we want, live the right way, and then claim our victory. That's what living for God looks like, end quote. And yet, Venetha, to this day, remains in a wheelchair. Is that the message of Job? Is that the message of Job? There is no indication in God's words from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that Job would receive either physical or material blessing for his praying for them. There's no indication at all in the text that God's commanding of Job would benefit in any way from his intercession. There's never any indication that Job even prayed for the restoration or that his prayers served any other function other than just his willingness to humble himself before God because of the horrible wrongs that he had done to God and to pray for them for the horrible wrongs that they had accused him of. It didn't happen. He didn't pray for his friend's spiritual restoration, in other words, thinking that by doing so, it would lead to his own financial and physical restoration. No. Job prayed for his friends because he was compelled to do so out of his humbling and the result of worshiping God. So Job prayed for his three friends because he'd become so utterly laid low after all the catastrophes by his confession of sin and acknowledgement of God's total, utter sovereignty that he couldn't think of doing otherwise. He had to pray for them because he saw himself in comparison. The idea being expressed here in verse 10 is not one of cause and effect. This is what I want you to understand. It's not one that says, because you prayed, I restored but rather, verse 10 is an expression of God's unmerited grace in bestowing upon Job blessing. It is an expression of God's goodness, not God's bargain. Interestingly, here in the Hebrew, it actually says Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job while he was praying for his friends. I have the New American Standard. Not when he had prayed for his friends, as that translation says. In other words... God chose to restore Job's wealth to him even before he finished his prayer, before he had even accomplished any formalistic rite of passage, if you will. God wasn't waiting for Job to cross all the T's and dot all the I's before he blessed him. God blessed Job while he was praying because of the unaffected, uncoerced grace and mercy of God to do that. So this isn't a delayment of principle of retribution. This isn't a long overdue gift given by God for all that he had stolen from God, uh, Job, as some theologians have wrongly said. God is not under the compulsion, right, to have to do any of that. No, God is here choosing to restore to Job twice what he had lost merely because God wants to bless his servant out of his own unequaled, gracious character to demonstrate his magnanimous favor upon Job after all that happened to him. It's not a result of manipulation or anything on Job's part. I say that because you remember King Solomon, 
also in the Old Testament, the beginning of his monarchy, prays for wisdom to rule the people of God. And he prays for an understanding heart to lead the people he's accountable for. And what is God's response to that prayer in 1 Kings 3, 11 through 13? He says, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and not have asked for yourself long life or have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. So there has been none, no one like you before you, nor shall there be one like arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor, so there will be not anyone among the kings like you in all your days. You see, once Solomon prayed to God to make him a blessing to others, God chose through the exercise of his own independent grace to bless both men with fortune and even though neither one, Job nor Solomon, asked for it. This is very important. I want you to understand. Because believing the opposite can be very scarring, especially when you're in dire circumstances. This is very important to think the opposite. It's not, I prayed, you owe. It is not, I did what was asked of me, fix what is wrong in me. It's not that in the book of Job. Some might be tempted when they first read these words to imagine that Job one day was afflicted and then the next day he was healed. That's not even the case. There's a whole lot of white spaces in the section that we have read. For example, we don't know when Job recovered from his illness. And in fact, we're not sure if the skin disease was cured overnight the next day or the next year because the text doesn't mention it. It doesn't mention the restoration of his health at all, even though we assume because he lived a long length of days that the Lord did heal him. But if there was healing, think of it, which we believe there was, then there would still have to be rehabilitation and there would still have to be physical therapy. And there still have to be a repairing of the scars of the physical issues. There'd be a getting used to life again, to what real life was. There's no promise of physical restoration here in Job. There's no promise of financial restoration either. But there's just this beautiful picture of God's eagerness to restore the child who had come to his senses, who had turned to God for forgiveness, who had cried out to him to forgive those even who had hurt him. Not for the promise of restoration, but simply because God moved his heart to do that. And I might add that when God restored Job, verse 12, to twice the sheep, twice the camels, twice the oxen and donkeys, he had in chapter 1, it was much more than just a restoration of Job financially. It was a restoration of his honor. Once the possessions he had in the beginning of the book, he was considered the greatest man of all the East, and because of his prosperity, then people saw that as a sign that God's hand of approval was upon him. But after such devastation had come upon him, the question was, how could God still be with him? And so the Lord, again, out of his own complete and utter grace to Job, gives to him much more than just material wealth. He restores back to Job a sense of honor as well which prepares us for the second manifestation of Job's blessing. The second way that God blesses Job, first we see God restores Job's wealth or his finances, but also God repairs Job's heart. And we're going to see that in the beginning of verse 11. Again, back to Job 42, verse 11 and 13. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before he came to him, they ate bread with him in his house, 
and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversaries, adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of money and a ring, each one a ring of gold. And it says later he had seven sons and three daughters. You know, when I was preparing for this message, I had a lady come up to me and ask me what I would be preaching. And I quoted Job 42, 11. And before I could even explain to her the meaning of the text, she just started to weep. And when it said, I said, I haven't even explained this to you. And she said, it doesn't need explanation because I fully understand. When she grasped the fact that the Word of God says that at the end of the story of Job, after all that he had gone through, that tender thought in her heart was that the Lord had said he consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him, that his friends and family did that. It just flooded her heart with joy. Why? Because for anyone who's ever really suffered, who's any felt lost like this, now to read at the end of the story that there was going to be a repair of his heart and that the repair of his heart was going to be by those who had abandoned him, that makes our hearts explode with the deepest expression of, of incredible thankfulness. It was the English writer J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the famous Lord of the Rings anthology, who coined a term called eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe, E-U-C-A-T-A-S-T-R-O-P-H-E. It was a new word. Actually, he coined it using the Greek word for good, you, and the Greek word for destruction, katastrophe. So eucatastrophe, then, is a term that refers to the sudden turn of events in the end of a story, which ensures that the protagonist does not meet some kind of terrible impending doom. And Tolkien writes this, that eucatastrophe is the word that, quote, that suddenly, that sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. That sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. You see, we cry when we sense the end of this story, not just for Job, but we have tears for ourselves because as we read this, the tears of joy comes from the fact that we see the possibility. We see possibility of things being made right with us before God and being made right before others. And the knowledge of that, the knowledge that that can happen brings tears that are inexpressible. We see in his family and friends' description, and they come to him, the fact that they decided to do that, to eat bread with him, which is a sign of intimacy, to, to eat with him, closeness, to wrap their arms around this suffering man and leaning their heads on his broken shoulders. It's a sign of hope. It, it's a sign of, of that life is going to change. And to get the contrast for you, just so you know, if you go back to Job 19, you can see how important that was because of what had happened to him. Job 19, verse 13, Job says, meaning God, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight." He had been completely abandoned. There was a time, you remember, Job was a man who once was the lord in the estate of, of so many people and had servants and maids and, and a wife and relatives and friends. Everyone was intimate with him, who esteemed him and loved him. But after this plight, they completely forsake him. He was, as it says in verse 14, a forgotten man. And yet, now, at the end of this wonderful hard story, 
all of his family and friends who knew him before this great catastrophe of life come to him in the eucatastrophe of Job's story. This is the sudden happy turn in the story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. After being abandoned by your friends, after being abandoned by those who are the closest to you, fellow believers, something like the Apostle Paul suffered in Timothy 4.16 when he writes, My first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. In Mark 14.50, we read that even our own Lord Jesus Christ was deserted by his own. They all left him and fled. There's a time in life. You may have already experienced it when hardships come, and many will be tempted. Many will be tempted to desert you in your suffering. Uh, Suffering in some folks' minds brings with it the sense that God's cursing you and that God's curse is upon you, and it's like an infection. And if they're close to you, it brings fear in others because they believe they too will be infected by that same kind of suffering. It's very, very true, but sad. And that is that it's not uncommon for those who suffer the greatest to suffer alone. But then God changes hearts. And then God moves souls and he removes barriers and he unites hands together again. This is restoration that goes much further than just the bestowment back of material fortunes to Job. This restoration, what God is doing, of of descending down into the consciences of men and women and changing them, compelling them to turn away from fear and from judgment and to allow them to be free again and to come to Job and to hold him and to love him. This is one of the most beautiful aspects of this entire story, the restoration of Job's heart through the comforting of his friends. And here in the middle of verse 11, they we read that they did that because they recognized all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him. The Lord brought upon him. You know, Satan is never mentioned after the first part of chapter 2 in the book of Job. God never brings up the issue of Satan to Job or to his friends the entirety of the story. Job is never given an explanation. Listen, never given an explanation for all the things that happened to him. Through the prism of demonic affliction, he's never shown a glimpse into the heavenly conversation that took place unbeknownst to him. He was only allowed to understand what his friends understood, namely that whatever happens to us, whatever doesn't happen to us, whatever passes through the doorway of our lives, whatever is placed before us day after day is never to be understood in any other way but to know that it's the Lord God over all that has brought these things to pass This is our Father's world. There is no resentment. There is no us against them sentiment. There's just a deeply moving sense that God is God and that his ways are mysterious and that we love him and we trust him. And even though we can never be fully able ever to explain all of the things that happen, that we can trust in his decision and we can accept his discipline and we comfort one another with one hand while we're praising him with the other. And then at the end of verse 11, we read that each one of his brothers and sisters and all that known him, which were many, many people, had come to him and they gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. This is very helpful for us to understand. They not only comforted Job with their compassion, but they comforted Job with their, with their currency. This was personal. This was intimate. Individual giving of their own wealth 
for the purposes of getting their brother back on his feet again. This is such a truly, in my estimation, vivid expression of love, deep and abiding love for Job. This was the means through which God repairs Job's heart. It's through their gifts. And none of this is expected. You have to, again, remember this. None of this was what Job even prayed for. This, this was, as they approached him after all this time, he was considered a leper. No one wanted to have anything to do with him. He was still most likely sitting on the top of the ash heap where they were outcasts and lepers were. Job had never once dreamed that they would one day knock on his door and extend their hand to him and, and hold out to him a gift from their heart. But God, being rich in mercy and love, moved his people to bring help to his servant so that Job's beaten face might gaze up to heaven once again. We come now to the third and last manifestation of God's blessing to Job. Not only did God restore Job's wealth and repair Job's heart, but thirdly and lastly, God also rewarded Job's legacy. And we see that in verses 12 through 17. Let me read that for you again. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than its beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named them first Jemima and the second Hikiza and the third Karen Hapik. And in all the land no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons for generations. This is a very important part of Scripture because the point for this section, this last section of the book, is to remember that with the life of Job, with his life, we have no instant recovery here. We, we have nothing expressed in these words either physically or, or materially. There's no creating wealth out of nothing. It wasn't just one day that Job was penniless and then the next day, bam, instant wealth, all came back to him, instant fortunes. That's not what you see here. In fact, the implication of the text here is it was the gold rings and it was the gifts that were given to him that most likely was used by him to reinvest back into his life, to raise up what he had before. That even though God had blessed Job twice of what he had before, Job still had to put his hand to the plow. And Job still had to gain for himself the wealth that he once had. That even though God did that, there is still a blessing in the fact that he also had to go back and work again. The twofold gaining of the sheep and camels and donkeys, think of this, just didn't happen like that. It just didn't happen that now with this newfound wealth given to him by his family, that that allowed Job in some way just to go to the local animal farm and pick out a thousand sheep here and a thousand camels here, and I'll take some of those and take them back. That wasn't the case at all. This wasn't some kind of instant accumulation of possessions as if a miracle, one day his fields were bare, and then the next day they were covered with cattle. No, no, no. The reward given to him was the ability to begin again. The ability to begin again. And then down in verse 13, we read another part of this emotional healing of Job's heart that we saw earlier was the gift of God giving him 10 more children. That doesn't happen in a vacuum either, folks. I mean, that, that means that, you know, God would have to bless his heart with good things, but there would still need be restoration. There would still need to be the restoration with his wife. Even though the text doesn't mention her here, 
The fact is Job was granted more children implies that there was healing between the two of them. In the beginning of the story, the last words we ever hear from Job's wife was a plea for him to curse God and die. Not exactly an easy thing to forgive once you've buried ten children and your flesh is burning like fire. But for there ever to be ten more children means that there had to be intimacy again. And there would have to be emotional healing and forgiveness. There would be healing and forgiveness. There would have to be prayer and long conversations and tears and more tears. And on top of that, Job would still need to see the birth of ten separate children over many, many years. And there would be then the raising of these children and the education of these children and constantly pointing them to God. And there would be memories of the children who had died, and there would have to be sacrifices that would be made for them and communication about what had happened to them. And the new children would have to be taught about the brothers and sisters who had been lost and the lessons about how God had restored Job's family. And all of that would be making Job's heritage even greater than before. There would be restoration for Job, but listen, it wasn't an overnight miracle. It was a 140-year miracle. Critics have said that this happily ever after inclusion of the seven sons and three daughters is just an appalling appeal of Pollyanna kind of inappropriateness at the end of this story that these ten new children could never make up for the ones that God had allowed to die in the beginning of the story. Why would God do that, thinking that this would fix what was broken? But what they miss, what they miss with such a knee-jerk reaction and that kind of thinking is the utter beauty that this scene evokes for a man like Job who had suffered so much. I say that because years ago I attended a funeral for a little two-year-old boy named Oaks Muxlow, who was the grandson of Dave Muxlow, who's one of the elders at Grace Community Church. And little Oaks had drowned in a bathtub accidentally, much to the complete horror and shock of his Christian parents. There were absolutely no words for the depth that those two parents felt. That little boy was their entire world, and it left an uh, unfillable hole in their heart. That was until almost a year later, God blessed the Muxlow family with the indescribable gift of two twin boys, two adorable blessings that filled that family with joy like they had never known. Oaks Muxlow would never, ever be forgotten. But God giving the gift of those twins to that hurting family would never be forgotten either. Verse 14 tells us that Job, not his wife, Job named his daughters, which was not the custom in ancient times, in Eastern times, yet Job had no problem breaking traditions at all. The names themselves are so beautiful to understand. Jemima, by the way, does not mean syrup. It means turtle dove, turtle dove. Kazia speaks of spice like a cinnamon kind of spice. Karen Hapak means cosmetic box that would refer to a container that would have black powder for the eyes. All three daughters filling his senses. The turtle dove to hear, cinnamon to taste, cosmetic to see. Life had returned to Job. Life had returned. And on top of that, verse 17 tells us that they were beautiful that they were the most beautiful girls and daughters in the land, daughters so beautiful that Job would never have to worry if they would ever marry because obviously they would call the attention of gentlemen callers. 
And on top of that, Job gave his daughters an inheritance, which was never done in his day if there were sons in the family. But again, Job, you see, was so filled with a sense of God's grace towards him that he lavished riches upon the mo- those who least expected it. Because it's not just the sons that God had granted him, but the daughters as well. God had rewarded Job with a great legacy in his new family, and Job turned that reward to those he loved. In fact, Job's legacy spawned way, way beyond just this new flock given to him by God. Verse 16 tells us that Job saw the remaining 140 years of his life. His sons, his grandsons, uh, his four generations passed before him. So that would be his generation, his first children's generation, his present children's generation, and his grandson's generation. Four generations of families paraded by this dear man until the day he died. Surely Psalm 128 describes the man that Job became and is true for all who love the Lord. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. You see, this is something beyond even what he could have wanted or even asked. Happily ever after is not some kind of cheap superficial ending to a cataclysmic tale. It is a deeply contemplated conclusion of life to one who suffered so much. The end of Job is the eucatastrophe of Job, that sudden happy turn in the story that pierces you with a joy that brings you to tears. I think it's fair to say Job died in many ways in this story. He died in his heart the day his children's death. He died in his soul the day that his friends, his friends maligned his motives. He died in his soul the day his skin had been twisted and eaten away by disease. He died in his spirit the day that he began to see his maker as an unjust judge. And then God, in a way like none before, symbolically resurrects him. He restores his heart with new children. He restores his soul with a family now who loves him. He restores his skin with 140 years more of joy. And then he restores his spirit by allowing him to see God work in his life in such amazing, amazing ways that he is humbled and has compassion and is brought to tenderness. So now the once dead Job knows life like one resurrected from the dead. His hope was in God. His hope is in the God who would provide, who would provide for him the ultimate hope, not in this life, but in the life to come. And many scholars are convinced that the book of Job was the first book of Scripture written. It is given to us as the oldest book, the first book of the canon of Scripture. And because of that, we learn that from the very beginning of God giving us his word, He's preparing us for 2,000 years later, the innocent sufferer who would come and be crushed by his father and yet be given resurrection and authority. And this is the one that Job knew, not by name, but the one he trusted in, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope, and he is our comfort, and he is the resurrection that we long for, and he is the one that makes all things right. We have no evidence, by the way, that 
Job's memorial was as wonderful as we might have thought it was, but we can assume it was a wonderful day. People must have come from all over the land to pay their respects to the patriarchs of patriarchs. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, most likely by that time had died. God has sustained Job's life for another 140 years, but it is possible that his children were there and his daughters and their husbands and his grandchildren. And after they had sung some ancient hymns and after they had bid their last goodbyes, one could only imagine that as his children perhaps placed a plaque above the tomb that they may have etched words for all to read. Once upon a time there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and the Lord brought many adversities upon him, and yet he lived happily ever after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are full because even though we know that adversity, trials are in our lives, if they're not, they're coming. We're either going into a trial, in a trial, or coming out of a trial. There is no other way of living. And yet we know that though we are coming to or in that time of life, that you are there with us, and that you care, and that you love and though we may never get explanations in this life, no answers, as Job had no answers other than, I am God. I am the one who has been from the beginning until the end. I will be with you. I will never forsake you. You can trust in me. May that be our prayer as well, that we know that, Lord, no matter what happens to us, that if we are in you and with you, then all will be fine. And our story, too, like Job's, will be a happily ever after. We pray these things in Jesus' name.